Our scripture for this morning comes from uh, the book of Jonah, chapter 4, uh, 1 to 11. Uh, it's going to be found on page 1438 on your pew Bibles. It says, uh, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in his shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give it shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed up the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, It would be better for me to, to, to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. But Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Uh, this is the first week of Lent, and one of the main ideas of Lent is the idea of repentance. It's a time where we consider different ways that we failed as Christians to do what we were meant to do. We're meant to remember our own for, for mortality by doing things like fasting, whether from food or from some other distracting pleasure we have in our lives. And we're also near the end of a series on fixing Mrs. Jellybee syndrome, uh, which has been about ways that we sometimes think in really big, abstract concepts that have a hard time with reality on the ground. In this story, we're done to see another person with something like Mrs. Jellybee syndrome, which we talked about before. Jonah sees the city of Nineveh as an irredeemably evil place that has no good in it. If they wanted to stop being evil, they'd have to go really far. But God encourages them to just take that one tiny next step towards repentance, and that would be enough for him to have mercy. And meanwhile, Jonah thinks that God should just destroy them entirely. When God shows him that if Jonah wants to be forgiven, he'd better start forgiving others. Again, we can often have this idea that, that when we're looking at the world from a thousand feet up, we can think that tons of other people are sinning and should be punished, and we forget that we need forgiveness too. So, since we're jumping into the very end of the book of Jonah, with no context, <laughs> I thought it might be good to recap where the book has gone so far. In chapter 1, God speaks to a prophet named Jonah and says, get up, go to Nineveh, and preach that they're evil and I'm going to do something about it. And it's at this point that we're introduced to the character of Jonah, who's completely absurd. Um, he's full of contradictions and irony, and I really think as readers, we're meant to laugh at him. Now, the first act that Jonah does is completely consistent with who he is the rest of the book. God says to get up and go east to Nineveh, and Jonah gets up to flee from God. To do that, he gets in a boat, and he sets sail to this place called Tarshish, which for them was about as far west as the known world actually went. When he's in the boat, the sea around him gets really violent, and the ship almost sinks, apparently because God didn't want him to disobey. Shocker. 
Um, all the people on the boat are calling out to their gods, and they wake Jonah up because somehow he was sleeping through all of this, and because he's absurd, and ask him what god he serves so that they can hopefully do something to appease him. Jonah says that he serves the most powerful god in the whole universe who made everything, as if that's some sort of pride, point of pride for him. Like, yeah, you know that god I'm fleeing and dishonoring and offending? He's awesome. He's way better than your gods. <laughs> the sailors freak out because no wonder the storm is here if Jonah angered a huge god like that. Of course, Jonah knows why the storm is happening, so he has them throw him overboard. And in case you might want to give him credit for that, remember that he totally could have repented and agreed to go back to Nineveh, and the storm would have calmed down. Instead, he basically decides to drown in the middle of the sea because there's no way he'd be willing to repent. When he falls in, a big fish swallows him whole, the sea calms down, and all the people on the boat worship God. Then Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three whole days. Now, you or I might be in the fish and say something like, this place is disgusting. Where have I gone wrong? Maybe I should do what God says, or something like this is going to happen again. Please, God, save me, etc., 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 etc. But not Jonah. Jonah basically says, God see is what did this to me, so that's all his fault. But he saved me by sending this fish, and so he must have come around to my point of view. I'm glad I serve a God who's powerful enough to do this, unlike those filthy Gentiles on that ship I just endangered. Anyway, thanks God for doing the right thing in the end. It's insufferable. And it's so insufferable that God has the fish vomit Jonah up onto the land like both the fish and God are tired of him. When he's back on land, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh again to tell the Ninevites that they've done evil and that God's not going to do something about it, which was probably a surprise to Jonah after what he thought was a heart-to-heart among the stomach acids of the fish. But Jonah knows that now that God means business, so he decides to go to Nineveh. When he gets there, he walks a little ways inside and preaches the shortest and most uninspired sermon of all time. It's five Hebrew words, and it loosely translates to 40 days and Nineveh's toast. Five. (laughs) In placid Gentile fashion, though, the Ninevites do a bunch of outward things, like fasting and putting on sackcloth, but don't really change, since, by the way, about 20 years later, they conquer most of the known world and become known as one of the most brutal empires of all time. God sees this, and he decides not to destroy Nineveh. And that's where our chapter picks up. In the whole book, your main question is basically, what's this Jonah guy's deal? Why is he going through all this trouble to avoid telling Nineveh that they've done evil and that God's going to do something about it? Why is God so insistent that he does it? Why doesn't he find somebody else? You basically have no idea what's going on for the majority of the book. No one seems to be acting the way you would expect them to act. Jonah is so ridiculous, it's almost funny. The book of Jonah is a lot like The Sixth Sense uh, with Bruce Willis, without spoiling it. Although, like, come on, it's been, like, years. Uh, so you should totally see it because it's awesome. Um, anyway, there's a huge twist at the end, and there's a lot of things which you don't understand the first time you watch it until you know what the twist is. So here is the reader. You're basically laughing at how absurd and stubborn this Jonah guy is. And you might even be frustrated and confused because nothing that he's doing makes any sense. Is he afraid? Is he tired of being a prophet? What's going on? We've gone through nearly the whole story, and we don't even understand what the heart of the conflict between God and Jonah is. So finally, in this last chapter, we're made to understand Jonah's whole deal and what has actually been going on in this entire book. In 4.2, we find out the reason that Jonah ran so far away from God is he he is so wonderful. That shit's out. Uh, He says, I knew that you are God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What Jonah is quoting here 
is basically the central Old Testament refrain about how wonderful God is. If you look at Joel 2.13, Nehemiah 9.17, Exodus 34.6, Psalm 86.15, Psalm 103.8, etc., 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 you'd see the same words almost verbatim used to praise God for how merciful and just he is and how willing he is to keep his promises to his people even if they don't keep theirs. But here, Jonah is throwing those words in God's face. Just like he sees everything from kind of a weird point of view, Jonah sees the words which most perfectly describe how great God is and thinks that it makes God ridiculous. It is a ridiculous thing for God to be so merciful and forgiving and wonderful. Jonah thinks that this makes God flippant, silly, and soft. Why would you have mercy on the Ninevites? Why don't you destroy them? They deserve it. And they did. If you have the stomach for it, just look up the atrocities of the Assyrian Empire, whose capital was Nineveh, committed just a few years after Jonah visited them. Impalements, skinning people alive, beheading, you get the picture. Did God think the Ninevites would change? They put on sackcloth and they wailed out to God, but that's just what people did in those days when some prophet said that God would come and destroy the city. That's not true repentance. It made no lasting change, and it ultimately caused Israel to suffer the same fate as so many others at the hand of Nineveh. The problem we have now is just a few verses earlier, we were laughing at Jonah because he's a ridiculous and stubborn person. You're thinking, this guy can't be for real. But now what he's talking about is all too real, especially to those who would have been deported to Nineveh by these same people soon after the events of the story. Why doesn't God punish that evil in the world? So Jonah's thinking about how silly God is, and ever the drama king, he says that the whole thing makes him want to die. So he decided that he would sit out in the heat and wait for God to destroy the city. What he's doing here is basically playing chicken with God, just like he played chicken by being thrown in the sea. If he stays out in the heat long enough, then he's going to die of heat exhaustion. He thinks that God loves him so much that he would destroy the entire city just to make Jonah happy enough that he would seek shelter and not die. Basically saying that God needs to come around to his side and save him because he's not going to admit that he's wrong. Do you notice the irony here? Jonah's really mad at God for accepting the repentance of the Ninevites, but hasn't even begun to repent himself. Jonah, of course, plays this whole thing up, mentioning that he was going to die over and over again, hoping that God would make, take pity on him instead of the city. What God does is he makes this shady plant grow over him so he can keep cool, uh, but Jonah thinks that God is finally coming around to his side, just like he came around to his side when he sent the fish. And so then he's convinced that, he, that God was just being silly with all this forgiveness business, and he was giving Jonah a nice little umbrella so he could watch the city burn in peace. Instead, God makes the plant shrivel up, and so Jonah gets really mad because it seemed like God really was going to choose him over the city, but now he's leaving Jonah to die. Of course, Jonah doubles down and tells God that he's angry enough to die, and they go back and forth. Jonah basically says, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Either the city is destroyed or I die. God, I know that you are this incredibly merciful God, and that's cool and all, so have mercy on me by destroying this city so that I don't die. It's time for you to choose. It's me or Nineveh. And God says, I choose Nineveh. It's a big city, and I made the whole world. So I'm going to care for these hundreds and thousands of people, not to mention all the animals. You're being ridiculous. So if you don't like it, you can repent. But I'm not going to be held hostage and just destroy this city to make you happy. 
The plot thickens a bit when you realize that what God just did to Jonah is basically the exact same thing he did to Israel 30 years later. Israel was constantly being ridiculous, always counting on God to be merciful and bail them out of situations they got in themselves because of their sin. And this was starting to harm the people living around them, who were frankly no better than Israel. But Israel thought they could keep doing this forever, because God is always faithful to his promises, no matter how terribly they acted. God promised to protect them, and he protected them. If you want to see how terrible Israel was, read the book of Amos. They were violent and oppressive, and they sold the poor for a pair of shoes, and they acted like God existed just for their benefit. They were supposed to be a light to the world to show how great God was. They were supposed to be the ones that brought God's salvation to the whole world. Instead, they might have been even worse than their neighbors. Eventually, it came to the point that Nineveh invaded, and Israel was basically saying for the 285th time, it's either us or Nineveh. And God finally said, I choose Nineveh. Just like Jonah, God gave Israel hundreds of chances. And just like Jonah, Israel took advantage of God's mercy and finally said, I'm going to save the world through someone else. If you don't like it, you can repent. What the Old Testament says is that Israel was God's chosen people in the 8th century BC. And when they took advantage of his mercy for hundreds of years, God judged Israel, removed it from the promised land. The church is God's chosen people in the 21st century. And if we take advantage of God's mercy and fail to repent when we know our own sin, God will judge us accordingly. Hebrews 10 says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume God's adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of his covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is merciful, but you're dead wrong if you think that means you can get the benefits of being a part of his people without ever listening to his voice, especially if your sin starts to affect other people. We can be like Jonah and avoid repenting by pointing out other people's sins. But when push comes to shove, we'll have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But we also know that God is unbelievably, ridiculously, and incomprehensibly merciful. To the extent that a person like Jonah could hate him for exactly that reason. God doesn't care if it makes him look weak or causes other people to laugh at him. He knows quite well that it might lead people to take advantage of him. But he's merciful and gracious anyway. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from judgment at even the slightest hint of repentance. He knows if you repent, you're probably going to relapse. In fact, he knows it long before you think about repenting. Jonah and God both knew that what the Ninevites did when he preached to them is exactly what can be expected from people in the ancient world when some prophet preached the doom of a city. You do whatever it takes to get that God off your back so you can go back to your lives in your normal time. The Ninevites didn't have a coming to Jesus moment. They just made the easy decision that it was best to cover their bases. Yet even this incredibly shallow repentance 
is all it took for God to have mercy on them. But isn't this the exact kind of God you would want when you need to repent? I've been struggling with sin my whole life. I can tell you with absolute certainty that I'm terrible at repenting. It never seems to stick, and I'm left asking myself whether God could possibly be so patient with me or if he could ever accept my, my repentance. I tell God that I'm sorry, but in the back of my mind, I'm not sure if I even trust myself that I'm being sincere. How could I be sincere if I keep stirring up like this? It makes me so happy to know that the God I worship is willing to so run so far to me when I make even the tiniest and most pathetic steps toward him. That God became a person in Jesus. Because of that, knows full well every one of the weaknesses that I face, which makes it so hard to stop sinning. And he literally lives inside me through the Holy Spirit, helping me to live the way that he wants me to. And he did all of this because of some overconfident and blind promise that I made years ago that I would give my life to him and become who he wants me to be. God knows that if it were completely up to us just to repent, let alone stop sinning, there's no way we could do it. That's God's message to Israel, and it's his message to us today. We can't reverse years and years of sin in one fell swoop. We can just take that first pathetic step, and he'll make it perfect. Ultimately, if there's even the tiniest reason for God to have mercy, you can bet that he'll do it. He's a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he, resent, he relents from disaster. Just this week on Ash Wednesday, we read Joel 2, 1 to 17, which is a very similar story. In fact, that passage has a direct quote from this passage, and it's 100% word from word. People have tended to think that the books of Joel and Jonah are connected for this reason. But there's one main difference in the books. Where the people in the book of Jonah repented, even though they were Gentiles who really had no business repenting or knowing the God of the Bible, the people in the book of Joel didn't repent. God was gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relented from disaster over and over again until a time came when he just had to punish Israel and they would, or, or they would destroy their entire mission and everything they stood for. The people in Joel had every advantage, and they should have known full well that they needed to repent if they were going to survive. But they just didn't. Let's not let that be said about us. Yet even now, Joel says, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So finally, the book ends with Jonah sitting there in the heat of Nineveh. God finished speaking, and we have no idea what happens next. Does Jonah just decide to head on back to Israel? Does he repent, and does God use him? Or does Jonah stay out in the heat until he dies, waiting in vain for God to stop being so merciful to the wrong people? Does he continue being this comically ridiculous person, or does he submit to God's will? It's up to us to speculate. And it's interesting because what that does is it places us in Jonah's shoes, thinking about what we, he would do and what we would want him to do. And of course, in the end, we are actually in Jonah's shoes. Every day, we have to make the decision whether we will submit to God and let him be our master, or if he will submit to sin, and, or if we will submit to sin and let it be our master. Think about it for yourselves. 
What sin has God revealed in your life? Is it so great that you don't even know how to get rid of it? All you have to do is be like the Ninevites and make the tiniest and most pathetic steps toward him, and you'll be amazed by his mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that we have not always been faithful to you, even though you have always been faithful to us. We want to repent from our sin, or at least we want to want to repent from our sin. Lord, please take our pathetic steps towards you and guide them so we can live in the way that you want us to live. Amen.